This is Guns and Butter. Tenet was personally responsible for ten rejecting ten opportunities to capture Osama bin Laden. Um, you know, he he just really was not fighting terrorism, but at the same time, he was he was hyping the idea of Al Qaeda being such a big threat. So those two things are conflicting, and they point to the idea that Tenet, along with several other of the suspects. Uh, were actually promoting a myth about terrorism that they would potentially exploit at some time in the future, and perhaps 9-11 was that opportunity. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19, Part 3. Kevin Ryan was site manager for a division of Underwriters Laboratories, or UL. As a manager at Underwriters, he began in 2003 to question the World Trade Center investigation being conducted by UL and the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, and UL's work to ensure the fire resistance of the buildings. Ryan lost his position at UL for making his questions public. He was a founding member of the 9-11 Working Group of Bloomington and Scholars for 9-11 Truth and Justice. He now serves as co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. He has co-authored several books and peer-reviewed scientific articles on the subject of 9-11. His latest book is Another 19, Investigating Legitimate 9-11 Suspects. Today we discuss former CIA Director George Tennant, the Secret Service, and the Pentagon. Kevin Ryan, welcome again. Thank you, Bonnie. I was most intrigued by your chapter on George Tenet. Where was Director of Central Intelligence George Tenet on the morning of 9-11? Well, he was in Washington on the morning of 9-11, and he was having breakfast with his uh, mentor, a former senator named David Boren from Oklahoma. And uh, Boren had really uh, sponsored Tenet throughout his career, um, Tenet became director of the CIA in 1997 and was one of the uh, longest-serving uh, CIA directors in history. And, um, you know, he was uh, really a suspicious character throughout that time in that he was, uh, Tenet was, hyping the threat of terrorism um, during that time in the late 80s before September 11th, while simultaneously not actually doing anything about terrorism. So, um, But one thing that uh, might have caught your eye, Bonnie, is that um, Senator Boren comes from a very interesting area of the country in Oklahoma City area, where there was a lot of activity related to uh, the alleged hijackers, and their alleged accomplice, Zacharias Massawi, as well as even going back to the suspects in the Oklahoma City bombing. So uh, David Boren, uh, who uh, helped to create the official account on, on the news uh, that day, was meeting with Tenet and, um, and also has a lot of connections to some suspicious activity at airports in the Oklahoma City area. Well, I was going to ask you, what is unusual about 
the Oklahoma City suburb of Norman, Oklahoma. Isn't that where David Boren lives? Yes, that's uh, exactly. He is the president of the University of Oklahoma, and uh, he lives there. And the university runs uh, its own airport uh, there. And um, that airport is where this uh, this Zacharias Masawi character, uh, who, by the way, is the only person convicted uh, of any crimes related to 9-11 currently. He, uh, Zacharias Masawi, lived at that university and took flight lessons there at that airport. Uh, So Norman is a very interesting uh, place that hasn't been mentioned a lot uh, there is also another airport uh, not far from the university airport that's of uh, a lot of interest to me and other researchers, and that is Wiley Post Airport, uh, which is just a, a few miles away on the west side of Oklahoma City. And uh, the reason is because the uh, actual uh, hijackers, uh, alleged hijackers on 9-11, um, frequented that area. So they came to these airports. They were seen flying at these airports. Um, and they were also seen uh, at a motel. The motel just outside of Oklahoma City, not far from these airports, was frequented by Muhammad Atta and Marwan El-Shahi, both the alleged suicide pilots from 9-11. It was also uh, frequented by Zacharias Musawi, and, and these, these men came to this motel looking for rooms to stay in. The motel owner tried to give this information to the FBI after 9-11, and, and uh, he met with FBI indifference. They didn't want the information, apparently. What was even more surprising about that is this um, so-called terrorist motel um, was frequented also by the Oklahoma City bombers, uh, or the suspects in that bombing, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, uh, stayed at that motel as well, and the owner of that motel Again, in those early days, tried to get this information to the FBI, and the FBI didn't seem to want it. So that was suspicious. And there's a good article in the uh, LA Weekly about this terrorist motel that lists all of these attempts by the motel owner to get the information out and the FBI not wanting that information. So there's a lot of interesting things and connections between 9-11 and Oklahoma City that, that really need to be followed up on. I've found... I've dug up some of that that provides startling evidence that there was something going on at these airports that related to the training or the coordination of the suspected terrorists. And so, um, you know, for example, Wiley Post Airport was the longtime uh, the location of, uh, of the offices for uh, the aviation companies run by Wart Dexter Walker, who was the uh, CEO of the World Trade Center security company Stratisec. So Walker had these aviation companies as well as Stratisec, and the aviation companies were located right there at Wiley Post Airport in Oklahoma City. So that's uh, interesting because the alleged hijackers, Atta and Al-Shahi and, and a number of others were seen there, were seen flying at Wiley Post Airport, had come in and, and looked into classes both there and at the university airport in Norman. Um, but also because afterward, after 9-11, Stratisec and the, the other aviation companies that Walker ran all went bankrupt, uh, 
coincidentally. And uh, so as Walker moved out of his Wiley Post airport offices, uh, the person who moved in was a man who ended up being the uh, lead witness in the Zacharias Musawi trial. And this is just really startling that uh, the reason he was a witness is that he was the trainer for Zacharias Musawi at Norman, uh, at the University Airport in Norman. So these connections seem worth following up on, that the World Trade Center security company CEO was running aviation companies out of the same offices that were later occupied by Zacharias Musawi's flight trainer. It just seems too coincidental, and um, that's one of the things that I point out in my book. And in addition to the airport, what significant role did the University of Oklahoma play? For instance, what about Nick Berg, who was beheaded in Iraq? Yeah, it's interesting that a, a, a University of Oklahoma librarian um, uh, stated that a ticket for one of the uh, alleged hijackers on Flight 93 was bought by uh, a white American male on one of the university computers. And um, it, it's been speculated that the ticket that was purchased at the University of Oklahoma for one of the alleged hijackers was purchased by a man named Nick Berg, who was an American, who was supposedly a student in Norman, and was later the victim of a famous Al-Qaeda kidnapping and beheading. Um, people may remember the video that was showing up on television of uh, Nick Berg uh, being captured and then held, and then eventually his actual beheading was filmed on a video and shown. So it, it's an alarming coincidence, if nothing else, that Nick Berg, who was a very famous victim of an al-Qaeda um, assassination, was also a character who was in contact with Zacharias Musawi, an alleged al-Qaeda operative in Oklahoma City, and um, Masawi supposedly used Nick Berg's email account to send messages. It's very coincidental, and, and really it needs to be followed up by um, people with subpoena power. And um, although this was really startling as well, an implausible sort of story was cooked up for it that Berg had just happened to meet Masawi on a bus and, and allowed Masawi to use his laptop for just five minutes on the bus. And that was the excuse how this uh, famous Al-Qaeda victim was somehow connected through the use of his email account by the uh, uh, alleged uh, Al-Qaeda operative, Zacharias Musawi. I remember seeing that video of so-called Al-Qaeda um before this uh, famous beheading, and I remember there was a lot of commentary about the uh, so-called Al-Qaeda operatives. They were big, beefy guys, and, and everyone was commenting that um, it didn't look like they were starving terrorists. Yeah, exactly. That's what I felt as well. When you looked at those early propaganda videos, you can't call them anything but that, due to their the timing, the political convenience of the timing of the videos to kind of uh, promote the ongoing fear of Al-Qaeda. But uh, you could see right away there were some very interesting similarities between what was going on in these videos and what went on in 
U.S. prisons for al-Qaeda terrorists. I mean, the, the terrorists were dressed in the same sort of orange clothing as if al-Qaeda was going to use the same procedures as as the U.S. prison system. And, and the uh, al-Qaeda terrorists look, uh, as you said, very hefty. They really, if you look at their hands, they look like white people. Um, their faces were almost entirely covered, so you couldn't tell. But those videos are very suspicious. Was George Tenet close to Bandar Bush? Yeah, actually, George Tenet and uh, Louis Free, who was the director of the FBI at the same time, both of them had developed close relationships with Prince Bandar, who was a Saudi prince and... Um, and he was the ambassador to the United States at the time. And there are a lot of interesting things about Bandar. He was called Bandar Bush because he was so close to the Bush family, almost a family member. And George Tennant had developed close um, relationships in, in private communications processes that circumvented the uh, normal CIA communications uh, processes. So he had his own communications uh, feed to Prince Bandar, and the same sort of thing was true of Louis Free, who was the FBI director at the time. Now, this is very surprising because Bandar's wife, uh, Princess Haifa, was accused, and there is evidence suggesting that she was funneling money to the alleged hijackers in the United States. And so uh, that was uh, not really followed up on because partly because it was part of the evidence presented in a lawsuit um, made by the 9-11 victims' families that was ultimately um, thrown out by the court on a technicality. Uh, um, the ability to sue a foreign government was, was not supported. And, of course, the Obama administration, for some reason, uh, was against that lawsuit as well. But uh, Prince Bandar should be followed up. George Tennant has another interesting connection to Louis Free because they both joined the board of a company called Visage, V-I-I-S-A-G-E, Visage Corporation, which is the maker of very high-tech homeland security equipment. They both joined the board of that company in 2006 after they left their roles in government. But that company had been flagged by the Securities and Exchange Commission for 9-11 insider trading. That fact was brought out in some FBI summary documents. And so it's, it seems very um, revealing that George Tennant and Louis Free, who are the two men most responsible for failing to capture or kill these alleged hijackers, just showed up uh, on the board of a company that was flagged by the SEC for insider trading related to 9-11. There weren't that many companies that were flagged for 9-11 insider trading, just a handful, and, and one of them was this Visage company. So that needs to be followed up on as well, but it is, is also another alarming coincidence. I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19, Part 3. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What was CIA's new venture, InQtel? InQtel was um, a kind of a business incubator that the CIA ran. So it's a pseudo-governmental company, semi-private company. And what they did is they they looked for um, 
emerging technology. They look for emerging software companies and other kind of high-tech science companies that somehow would develop into sources of new technology for the CIA. And uh, George Tennant started that company along with some very interesting people, Paul Kaminsky, who was uh, associated with the RAND Corporation and, and also worked later with with a couple of the high-level military people who were missing on 9-11, Hugh Shelton and Mike Canavan. Stephen Friedman, who was uh, a principal with uh, the World Trade Center Impact Zone company, Martian McLennan, was also at NQTEL, and he later became George Bush's top economic advisor. He's connected to a lot of the people who are of, uh, of interest with regard to 9-11 as well. Uh, Norman Augustine, who was the CEO of Lockheed Martin, was in on this NQTEL operation, and he was a director at Riggs Bank which uh, is very interesting because that's where Princess Haifa had her account that she was funding funding the alleged hijackers from. So NQTEL is of uh, great interest in, in many ways, and um, George Tennant was a primary founder and leader of that company. What was the worldwide attack matrix that Tennant presented of September fifteenth, two 2001? Well, Tennant, um, instead of responding to um, to all of the uh, alarming anomalies that uh, he was associated with regard to 9-11, and I can go through those, but instead of following up on the unanswered questions of 9-11 right away and investigating what happened, instead he came up with this uh, basis for the war on terror called the Worldwide Attack Matrix. And it's basically a uh, a plan that was followed through um, as as kind of the blueprint for the war on terror uh, that he came up with immediately after 9/11, uh, just immediately, and presented to the White House. So, um, you know, there there's just so many reasons to investigate George Tenet that uh, you know his his background in creating the blueprint for the war on terror is, is is only one of those his connections to david boren as we as we mentioned and boren's uh, airport where the alleged hijackers trained and all the other things going on in oklahoma city um tenet was uh, responsible for the cia pretty much allowing two of the alleged hijackers al midar and al hazmi to uh, to travel the United States and stay in the United States and do whatever they wanted while they were here without being uh, followed or investigated. You know, his connections to Prince Bandar, as you said, those have to be followed up. His connections to 9-11 insider trading. You know, he had made a decision to disband the Osama bin Laden unit of, of the CIA in 1998, and he's never had to answer for that. Uh, he's been accused by CIA operative Michael Scheuer of of canceling or rejecting 10 separate opportunities to capture Osama bin Laden prior to 9-11. That Tenet was personally responsible for 10, rejecting 10 opportunities to capture Osama bin Laden. Um, you know, he, he just really was not fighting terrorism, but at the same time, he was he was hyping the idea of al-Qaeda being such a big threat. So those two things are conflicting, and they point to the idea that Tenet, along with several other of the suspects, uh, were actually promoting a myth about terrorism that they would 
potentially exploit at some time in the future, and perhaps 9-11 was that opportunity. How did George Tenet handle the 9-11 Commission, and what about the torture testimonies? Well, Tenet uh, obstructed and, and, um, and, and tried to prevent any serious investigation into 9-11. He was uncooperative with the first, the joint congressional inquiry. Um, you know, he refused to allow investigators to receive the important cables that would form the basis for the inquiry's uh, report. Um, you know, he just, he wouldn't be interviewed. He, he uh, denied the, uh, the request to be interviewed. Um, he just was very obstructionist. And, um, you know, that sort of thing is, it should just not be tolerated. We had, we had just suffered the greatest attack in the history of our country. And the official account was that, you know, these investigative agencies, the CIA and the FBI, were not working together and they were not doing their jobs sufficiently. And evidence since then shows that they were actually tracking some of these alleged hijackers while they were in the United States and apparently allowing them to proceed with their plans. So for George Tennant to refuse to be interviewed, to not provide the information that is being requested by these congressional investigations, uh, it's just outrageous that he was able to get away with that. Um, you know, one thing that along those lines is Tennant was um, actually identified by a very early uh, inquiry by the CIA Inspector General. Tennant and a few other characters were were um, named as being um, essentially accountable, responsible for a lot of the failures. And this CIA Inspector General report suggested there needed to be accountability. There needed to be some response to the fact that these people did not do their jobs. Um, ultimately, Tennant was let off the hook because the guy who followed Tennant into the job, Porter Goss, who's another suspect in the in this book, Porter Goss um, uh, took that and said, well, there's going to be accountability boards. And then he waited another year, and he canceled the accountability board. So Tennant was let off the hook entirely, despite the fact that he, he worked to prevent a thorough investigation. He did not cooperate with the investigators. You know, the CIA even insisted upon having these people called minders. These minders had to be uh, in place when any witnesses related to the CIA were testifying. So these minders, not only they're like lawyers or, or intelligence agents who would come along with the witness and they would consult with them as, as they were being interviewed, but in some cases, the minders actually responded to the questions for the witnesses. So the CIA did everything they could to prevent a thorough investigation, and George Tennant was a big part of uh, preventing that investigation from occurring properly. In your uh, new book, Another 19, you have a chapter on Carl Truscott and the U.S. Secret Service. You write that the U.S. Secret Service failed to do its job on 9-11. You know, the Secret Service was doing uh, some odd things that day in terms of um, what they were protecting the president from. And this, this trip to Sarasota involved a photo op for the president at an elementary school. It was a community outreach sort of thing. Uh, 
And it had been announced uh, days before, four days before. There had been a great deal of preparation for it. Unusual things um, begin to happen after it's learned that uh, a terrorist attack is underway. So, you know, the Secret Service was protecting Bush very well uh, up until that point of when he arrived at the elementary school. And this was just a few minutes after 9 o'clock at the exact time that the second plane hit the World Trade Center. You know, at this time, it's been noted that uh, the FAA and NORAD and uh, military and many other government agencies were aware that three uh, planes had been hijacked. And at that very moment, that two of them had impacted the World Trade Center. And yet, the Secret Service allowed the President of the United States to enter this elementary school, uh, a location that was widely publicized before, and not only enter the school after the second plane had hit, or as the second plane was, was hitting, but remain in that school for 35 minutes. As I go into in the book, there are certain important questions that need to be resolved with regard to the Secret Service and their behavior that day. Um, so the first thing being that they allowed the president to be there for 35 minutes after they knew that the country was under attack. So as I said in the book, either that's a failure to protect the president, but the alternative explanation was they, they knew he was not a target, that um, you know they, they allowed him to stay there uh, and didn't do anything to, to whisk him away and protect him, which is normal um, policy and procedure for the Secret Service. That's their job, uh, the Secret Service's Presidential Protective Division, which was led uh, by Carl Truscott. Um, although Carl Truscott was, was actually in the White House with, with the vice president, he had a supervisor there uh, who was leading the travel entourage for the Secret Service and the president. That was Edward Marenzel. Did Bush even give a televised speech while at the school in Florida? Yes, absolutely he did. Um, so while he was there for this 35-plus minutes, he uh, gave a televised speech, and he let the world know that he was there, at, still there at that school, uh, a highly publicized location that he was not being uh, removed from. So that's even more reason to wonder uh, if the Secret Service knew that he was not really a target. And this was fairly well, uh, well known that President Bush sat in the school reading with children even after he had been told that the country was under attack. Um, at the time, uh, President Bush's White House spokesman, Ari Flesher, uh, was apparently calling the shots for some reason. He was trying to get the attention of the president without the uh, press corps around him seeing it. But he was holding up a sign. A few journalists noticed that Harry Flesher was holding up a sign with big block letters saying, don't say anything yet to the president. As the president was just sitting there, Bush was sitting there doing nothing and being told by his press secretary to not say anything. Um, so all of these things are very odd. But again, that indicates that Possibly the Secret Service and the president's detail knew that the president was not a target. That's a big question. Um, I go into the book about a few people that are, were part of that detail. 
one of them being Joseph uh, Hagan, who was Bush's um, deputy White House chief of staff for operations. He had also been an assistant to uh, George H.W. Bush back in the first Bush One administration. And he came to uh, the George W. Bush administration uh, from what was called the United Fruit Company, which is uh, a well-known company in terms of being kind of a CIA asset uh, organization. Yes, isn't that Chiquita Banana? Yeah, the United Fruit Company, going back to, uh, you know, the coup in Guatemala in 1954 and so forth, they've been an organization that's been involved in uh, CIA coups around the world. And um, so Hagan was a vice president for them, and then he came into the Bush administration. He had responsibility for Air Force One and for the White House Communications Agency and for the Secret Service uh, Presidential Protective Division, at least from the White House point of view. And the interesting thing is Hagan is not uh, mentioned in the 9-11 Commission Report at all, despite being in such an important role. And the fact that the president was not protected should have led to all of these people being investigated. I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19, Part 3. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. According to your book, the largest Secret Service field office in the U.S. was in World Trade Center Building 7, which had already been evacuated by the time Bush even reached the school. Hadn't the Secret Service set up a meeting that very morning at WTC 7? Yeah, this is very interesting that uh, there actually were um, terrorism-related meetings um, being organized by the Secret Service in conjunction with Larry Silverstein, who was the owner of Building 7 and uh, the leaseholder for the towers. So the Secret Service and Silverstein had coordinated this uh, terrorism-focused set of meetings in Building 7 uh, on the morning of 9-11. And as I say uh, in the book, there were some interesting military uh, explosive removal groups that had been invited to that meeting and just happened to be there uh, um, at the time that the buildings were going down. Uh, The agency had invited these uh, explosive disposal units from the Army and from the Navy to attend this meeting. Um, And, uh, you know, Truscott had actually worked in Building 7 when he was assigned to the Secret Service in New York. But he was in Washington uh, at the time. And uh, and uh, as I said, as you said, the uh, the building uh, building seven had been evacuated, and uh, uh, Truscott was in the uh, Presidential Emergency Operations Center at that time with with Cheney. Was air cover provided for Bush's motorcade to the airport, or even for Air Force One? No, uh, the Secret Service did not request air cover. Uh, for Air Force One or for the motorcade. And uh, the uh, interesting thing is the motorcade appeared to uh, take off in one direction and turn around and come back and and go in another direction. And it's kind of reflective of what the president did once once he was on Air Force One, uh, flying around the country from uh, Florida to Barksdale Air Force Base in uh, Louisiana and then up to... uh, 
uh, Nebraska, and finally coming back to Washington later in the day. Uh, what's also interesting is that Vice President Cheney, just this year in 2013, has uh, admitted in a documentary airing on Showtime that despite all of uh, 9 the 9-11 Commission's claims that both Bush and the Secret Service were making these decisions as to where the president should go, Cheney says, Cheney says he was actually in charge that day. He says that now. And he was telling the president to stay away from Washington. Um, so those are interesting comments that he's made. And... Uh, they do make more sense given that uh, one would think the Secret Service would, would want the president secure and the country would need the president in Washington while these attacks were going on. What about the threat against Air Force One? Angel is next, as reported by William Sapphire at the time. Yeah, this is another reason why it's strange that uh, the Secret Service did not request air cover because in the 9-11 Commission report as well, it says that there was a threat uh, to Air Force One. And uh, they did track it down to a misunderstanding, apparently. But be that as it may, uh, that gives even more reason to wonder why there was no air cover for uh, the motorcade and for Air Force One if it was known that Air Force One was in fact some kind of target, even if it was a misunderstanding at the time. They wouldn't possibly have known that uh, at the time. So people must wonder why the president was not protected. Now, uh, it was later claimed that it was a misunderstanding, but at the time, this so-called threat to Air Force One was confirmed by Airy Fleischer, right? And in and, and William Sapphire's column, I believe it said that um, that whoever made the threat had the codes for Air Force One. Yeah, and I've, I've heard all of that, and uh, I report on it a little bit in the book, but I try to emphasize the fact that uh, that is just more uh, reason to wonder why the Secret Service wasn't doing its job. So we can't we can't say for sure if these stories are some sort of excuses for, for example, why the president was flying around the country randomly, or if they were real threats. And if they were, uh, we have to wonder why there were no uh, appropriate steps taken to protect the president uh, with uh, intercept or with, with uh, jet fighter escorts um, for the motorcade and also for Air Force One. Now, was there a parallel command system operating on 9-11? And if so, what was it? I mean, to me, this sounds extraordinary. And, and did Richard Clark verify this? Yeah. Apparently, the Secret Service had a parallel command system that somehow they, they uh, were able to uh, track everything that the FAA was tracking. Uh, they did. We do know that the Secret Service operated something called Tiger Wall, which was an air surveillance system, and uh, they were aware. We we know through the FOIA release documents that uh, Carl Truscott was aware that aircraft had been identified uh, en route to the Washington area. So he must have known that um, uh, very early, and yet he didn't take measures to protect the vice president, according to the official account. 
as I said, uh, this parallel command system, and Richard Clark has mentioned it, um, that the Secret Service not only had this parallel command system, but they had the authority to authorize the scrambling of interceptor jets, uh, which again goes back to the question of Andrews Air Force Base. When Andrews Air Force Base offered that exact um, service to the Secret Service when they were were talking, and the Secret Service agent said, uh, "No, we don't really need that. We'll call you back if we do." Um, you know, early on, that that indicates that something was going on at the Secret Service with regard to knowledge about the planes, and yet the uh, the interest in not doing anything about those planes. Did Cheney himself verify a parallel command system on Meet the Press? Yes, he he almost did. Um, he cut himself off as he was talking about this. So he was indicating uh, that the Secret Service could see what the FAA was seeing. He said uh, the on Meet the Press, he said the Secret Service had an arrangement with the FAA. They had open lines after the World Trade Center was, and then he cut himself off. So that, again, indicates that the Secret Service was on top of what was going on, and yet they were either aware of what uh, buildings and people were the targets, or they were not doing their job to protect those people. And in conjunction with the fact that they were running uh, a meeting on terrorism with military explosive ordnance disposal units at World Trade Center Building 7 at the very same time. All of this brings the Secret Service under strong suspicion. Now, Kevin, with regard to the Pentagon, could you discuss the history of the renovation project at the Pentagon? Now, this is a, a very important part of this renovation project is a very important part of your chapter on the Pentagon. That's right, it is. And the reason it is is because of the really odd coincidence of where the plane was said to have hit the building. Um, there was a renovation project that had been going on for a number of years um, before 9-11 and, and really kind of started in the mid-90s. Um, and this renovation project was under the control um, of the Deputy, Deputy, Deputy Secretary of Defense. Um, at the t uh, early on, that was John Deutsch. He was a man who uh, later became the director of the CIA. Uh, but the reason this Pentagon renovation project, again, is so interesting is that the place where the plane impacted is the exact spot that was the focus of this renovation project. So ultimately, of course, the renovation project was for the entire building, to re renovate this entire building, which had been around since 1941 and was in disrepair, apparently. But the focus of the renovation project, particularly from 1997 on, was just exactly in this one wedge where the plane hit, not only in, uh, there were five wedges to the building, and wedge one is where the plane hit, and that's exactly where the renovation project occurred. But not only that, the, the renovation project was focused on the external part of, the, of wedge one. So uh, we're not only talking about one-fifth of the building, we're talking about maybe one-twentieth of the building that was the, the focus of this renovation project from 1997 
to the day of September 11th. Uh, they were reinforcing the exterior walls and, and they were um, in, installing blast-resistant windows and uh, backing the exterior walls with Kevlar to minimize uh, shrapnel. Um, the idea, apparently, all along, was to prepare this very small part of the building for uh, an attack um, by explosives. And uh, as as you read through the book, you find out that there were there were uh, classified uh, exercises going on to uh, estimate the damage that would that would occur to the building from explosives. Um, and it just so turns out that the plane hit that very uh, exact spot. And so I began looking at the renovation. And as I said, the deputy, deputy secretary of defense was the person, no matter who it was, who was always in charge of this renovation project from John Deutsch um, to uh, ultimately on September 11th, Paul Wolfowitz, who was deputy secretary of defense. And therefore, for the nine months before 9-11, was in charge of this renovation project. And um, I think there's a lot of reasons um, that I'd be happy to go through to take a strong look at what happened there um, and the companies involved in contract being contracted for that work and the people at the Pentagon who were in charge of it. Well, you write that, uh, quote, at the time of the 9-11 attack, a dozen PNAC signatories worked in leadership positions at the Pentagon, including members of the Defense Policy Board. I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19, Part 3. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How significant is AMEC construction and Peter Jansen, as well as Fashina construction? Well, uh, AMEC or AMEC, I'll just call it AMEC Construction, was a, a subsidiary of the a British conglomerate AMEC. And uh, the reason that this company is so important uh, to a, an independent investigation in a 9-11 was because they were the company hired to do this renovation project. Um, not only that, but they were the company that was hired to uh, immediately to clean up and reconstruct the Pentagon, and to clean up the World Trade Center site, the same company. Um, the company had played a, a leading role in controlling the, the evidence, the steel structural evidence from the 9-11 attacks. Uh, it managed the uh, Hudson River barging uh, operation to uh, transport the debris um, to recycling operations. And uh, so this company that did the construction work on the Pentagon then immediately cleaned up and, and reconstructed the Pentagon and immediately cleaned up the World Trade Center site and controlled the evidence, was led by a man uh, who is a suspect in the book. His name is Peter Jansen. And Peter Jansen was president uh, uh, of uh, AMEC Construction, but just before uh, that, that role, for nine years, he was uh, fellow director uh, with Donald Rumsfeld in a company called ABB, uh, Swedish uh, Swiss Swedish uh, engineering company ABB. So Peter Jansen was a colleague of Donald Rumsfeld for many years throughout the 90s, and then uh, stepped essentially stepped down to this smaller company uh, 
AMEC construction that had all these key uh, roles in the construction of the Pentagon and the cleanup of the Pentagon and the World Trade Center site. Now, AMEC construction received a no-bid contract to clean up the Pentagon site, right? That's right. And uh, not only that, but uh, they had a significant presence in, uh, in the oil industry. So here's this company that uh, did a lot of business in Saudi Arabia and did a lot of business for the world's uh, largest or richest company, Saudi Aramco, um, suddenly getting no-bid contracts and doing all this work and being led by a colleague of Donald Rumsfeld, and yet they really aren't investigated at all. Um, they didn't have any any um, casualties, even though they had uh, supposedly over 100 people working in the exact spots where the uh, plane hit. Um, another part of uh, the fatalities this day, that day. Of course, there there were many people who died, but no uh, high-level leaders of the Pentagon were killed. And yet, um, these people who were working in accounting offices and uh, um, you know looking into um, the missing trillions of dollars that uh, Donald Rumsfeld had announced on September 10th, um, they did die. Um, so AMEC is a very serious uh, suspect in terms of being a company, and the person who led it, being a colleague of Donald Rumsfeld, should be a, a strong suspect in the crimes. Now, you've mentioned that uh, there is evidence of explosions at the Pentagon. Have you ever uncovered evidence that a commercial jetliner ever plowed into the Pentagon, as claimed by officialdom? Well, um, in the book, I hypothesize uh, something slightly different than uh, than than uh, is commonly considered within the 9/11 Truth movement. Um, typically, there are, there are arguments as to whether a plane did or did not hit the building, and there are good reasons to believe uh, both of those positions. Uh, there, there's a lack of uh, large debris in the area. There's a, a strong uh, uh, suspicion of how the plane could possibly have flown so low at such high speed um, without coming apart or, or uh, injuring the, the witnesses who are said to have been there. Um, but there's also reason to believe that, uh, um, that the plane possibly could have been flown through remote-controlled, GPS-guided um, technology, which did exist at the time. And um, the uh, uh, types of things that we're talking about have to do with uh, um, GPS, as I said, and, and uh, technology called the Wide Area Augmentation System. Now, um, a lot of people, of course, uh, feel that the evidence leans toward a missile hitting the Pentagon instead of a, a plane. Now, I... Um, I interviewed um, Hollywood producer Paul Cross uh, not too long ago. He happened to be in, in Washington, D.C. on the day of and drove over to the Pentagon. He was actually somewhere, I think, across that highway that goes in front of the Pentagon. And he said he got there, and it, to his astonishment, there was no plane there. And it, of course, changed how he saw 
the world. So I was just wondering if if you've ever come up with any evidence of a of a commercial jetliner. I mean, there's all sorts of theories about, of course, what hit the Pentagon or what didn't hit it. But was there any any real evidence of a commercial jetliner there? I think the evidence um, that I that seems most compelling have to, has to do with uh, pieces of fuselage are not very large that are uh, red, white, and blue, the colors of the American Airlines uh, insignia. That there are photographs of such pieces uh, on the lawn. And so there is some evidence that uh, possibly that an American Airlines plane was the uh, victim of the explosives. And, th- and there is a lot of uh, evidence indicating explosives at the Pentagon. There, there were many witnesses saying that um, there, were, there were explosions going on. Uh, some witnesses testified that the aircraft... Uh, uh, seemed to just melt into the building or that it sort of disappeared uh, like a toy into a birthday cake, one person said. Um, another person said it was in the air one moment and it was in the building the next. And so what I hypothesize is that um, the plane was guided uh, as if it was a missile using a basically missile technology um, into the area at the point it uh, approach the uh, trailers, the construction trailers, which uh, is where the plane was said to have impacted right in front of the building, then explosives might have been triggered at that time, which would have basically blown the plane into such small parts that it would not have been um, identifiable. Uh, now, that is all up for, for uh, discussion, of course, and really the point I try to make in many cases is that what exact aircraft type might have hit the building doesn't necessarily change who the suspects would be or where the investigation would go. So if you read my book, you see that it would still have had something to do, in my opinion, with the renovation project if explosives were involved, were planted there at the site. Um, It would still have to do with the disabling of the air defenses it would still have to do with uh, the people who were in charge at the Pentagon and why they didn't uh, suffer any injuries themselves and why they didn't respond to the attack in an effective way. But when we get to the damage to the building and the aircraft, the use of explosives is really the key. The use of explosives can explain the damage done to the building, meaning that uh, in some some people's minds, the holes that were created and and offered as evidence that a plane actually went through three fortified rings of the of the building Um, all of that could be explained through the use of uh, precisely placed explosives and also a limited amount of recognizable aircraft debris can also be explained through the use of explosives Um, but kevin if the if the official story posits that a commercial jetliner hit the pentagon why would they want to blow up the evidence? I don't get that. Well, okay, so this is the thing. If a plane of that kind was to hit a building like that and had been heavily reinforced, it would not have done a whole lot of damage. That's, that's the problem that they had. So now I can't explain why they did it in exact, exactly the way they did it, but I can tell you that uh, you can find videos online of jets hitting a concrete wall and just disintegrating. 
Um, they don't they don't do much to a concrete wall. This plane, in fact, had a carbon nose. I mean, the Boeing airliners are are known to have um, uh, soft uh, noses and aluminum uh, fuselage, so they're not very strong. Other than the engines, which are made of titanium. And uh, so there are pictures of, of engines in the buildings, and, and people do discuss uh, what those engine parts uh, indicate and where, where they came from. And I think there's uh, an argument about that. But uh, in any case, the explosives would give the idea that somehow this big thing came through and it crashed through the building, uh, where, in fact, it's unlikely that a Boeing... 757 would have been able to punch through uh, three separate rings of the Pentagon, especially after after they had been reinforced. Well, right, that's uh, Im- that's impossible. We of course talk about hijackers uh, because that is such an integral part of the official narrative. But have you ever discovered hard evidence that any of the planes were actually hijacked? Well, there's, that's a good question because the 9-11 Commission, one thing that's important to know is the 9-11 Commission did not tell us how any of the airliners were hijacked. They didn't even tell us, they didn't even really tell us how any of the hijackers, alleged hijackers, might have entered the cockpits of the planes. And there's so many unanswered questions about how they could have hijacked the planes. Um you know, if you take the 9-11 Commission report at face value, um, the 9-11, the alleged hijackers really didn't have a plan. Um, the, there were procedures uh, for locking the cockpit doors, um, and apparently the, the alleged hijackers got by all of that. Um, the hijack codes, which all of the crews were trained to enter into the transponders, um, took just a matter of seconds, and they were trained to do it immediately under any threat. Um, none of those hijack codes were entered in any of the four planes. Uh, the evidence for the alleged hijackers goes back to a couple of weak things. Um, there are a couple of videos, and in my book I mention that one of the videos, uh, the strongest one, um, there really are two only. One's in Portland, Maine, where Muhammad Atta was supposedly taking an inexplicable, inexplicable trip overnight right before the uh, 9-11 attacks. Went to Portland, Maine, then came back. There's a video of him in, in, uh, in the Portland airport. The, other, the only other video of the alleged hijackers entering the airports is uh, from Dulles Airport, where the Flight 77 hijackers were all apparently shown entering uh, Dulles Airport and being screened and so forth. That video system, uh, coincidentally, had been managed by the company Stratisec, which which is of great interest because it had so many security contracts for the World Trade Center, for uh, Dulles Airport, of course, and for United Airlines. Um, So the evidence... Uh, showing that the alleged hijackers might have actually hijacked the aircraft is very weak, um, whereas the technology available and the uh, evidence of what the planes did strongly indicate that those planes might have been taken over by GPS-guided remote control technology that was available at the time. 
Kevin Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Kevin Ryan. Today's show has been Another 19, Part 3. Kevin Ryan earned a B.S. in chemistry from Indiana University and has worked as a chemistry laboratory manager for many years in Bloomington, Indiana. He is the former site manager for environmental health laboratories in South Bend, Indiana, a division of Underwriters Laboratories, or UL. Kevin Ryan is co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies, which publishes peer-reviewed research, and a founding member of Scholars for 9-11 Truth and Justice. He has co-authored several books and peer-reviewed scientific articles on the subject of 9-11. Visit www.journalof911studies.com. That's Journal of the Numbers 911studies.com. Many of his articles can be found at www.ultruth.com. That's U-L-T-R-U-T-H dot com. His new book, Another 19, Investigating Legitimate 9-11 Suspects, can be found at www.another19.com. That's another, the numbers, 19.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To leave comments, order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or Faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying Look what this side yourself. yourself